0: Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, The Battle of Hattin, Part Three of Four. Last week I described the story of the Second Crusade, when the kings of France and Germany led an expedition to revive the fortune of the Crusader States. The campaign, however, was a fiasco, and failed to make any gains, If anything, the position of the most powerful ruler in the region, Nur al-Din, had been strengthened. In the years that followed, the scattered remains of the county of Edessa were separately absorbed by Nur al-Din and local Turkish warlords. Count Jocelyn II of Edessa tried to buy a measure of security by agreeing a submissive truce with Aleppo. But when the count was captured in 1150, Nur al-Adin paid little notice of Jocelyn's supposed status as a client ally, and threw him in prison, where he lingered until his death nine years later. The loss of Edessa prompted a stream of Frankish and Eastern Christian refugees to flee to Antioch and Jerusalem. The Crusader states had lost the impetus of their first few years. They were now exhausted militarily and financially their warlike zeal of before replaced by a cautious determination to survive. In the summer of 1149, Nur al-Addin, taking advantage of a rapprochement with a rival in Damascus, launched an offensive against Antioch. With a formidable invasion army spearheaded by 6,000 mounted warriors, he advanced into the Christian county and laid siege to the small fort of Inab. When this news reached Antioch, Prince Raymond reacted swiftly, compelling Nur al-Din to retreat. Believing the area secured, Raymond set up camp on the open plain. A fatal error. Nur al-Din had moved off only a short distance, and under cover of darkness, ordered his troops to encircle the Christian army. As daylight arrived, the Muslims made their attack, cutting down many of their foe, including Raymond himself. The Frankish principality was again deprived of its ruler, and with no obvious male heir apparent, left leaderless and vulnerable. Nur al-Adin's propaganda within the Islamic world chiefly concentrated on his offensives against the Christians but his campaigns were driven more by rivalry with fellow Muslims than out of any sense of religious war against the heathen. His gains opened up an unchallenged route south from Aleppo to his main target, the city of Damascus. In 1150 he sent a force to assault Damascus, but was unsuccessful, so in the next year he changed tactics by taking over the surrounding area Harvesting the local crops for himself, causing higher prices and economic hardships inside the city. In April 1154, again under direct attack, the ruler of Damascus finally surrendered control. Meanwhile in Jerusalem, after Raymond of Tripoli had died in the Battle of Enab, King Baldwin III of Jerusalem became guardian to the new Count of Antioch, Bohemond III, who was only five years old at the time. The young king's responsibilities were further increased soon after, when the Count of Tripoli was assassinated. The new Count there, Raymond III, was only twelve years old, so again Baldwin assumed the mantle of guardian. Raymond III of Tripoli, when he grew up, would become an important figure in the history of the Crusader states. Still only in his early twenties, Baldwin was now charged with all three of the surviving Crusader states. Despite this, in 1153, he was able to muster the full force of his armies to descend on the port city of Ascalon, on the border of the Crusader and Fatimid-held territory. After a hard-fought eight-month siege, Ascalon fell and became a vital stepping-stone for the further expansion of Latin ambitions in Egypt. And it was Egypt which was to become the centre of conflict between the Latins and the Sunni Muslims of Syria during the 1160s, both sides eager to exploit the weakness of Fatimid leadership in Cairo. Egypt was a country of immense attractions. It was well placed strategically to dominate the southeastern corner of the Mediterranean, as well as acting as a gateway to trade routes to the Indian Ocean. Also, the Nile's annual flood bestowed great fertility upon the arable lands along its banks, giving abundant agricultural surplus and therefore good tax revenues. It had been the bread basket of the Roman Empire its loss in the 7th century, contributing to the decline of the Eastern Empire in Constantinople. In the 12th century, there still lived in Egypt a very significant Christian population. The Arab ruling elite was largely concentrated in two centres, the port city of Alexandria, founded by Alexander the Great, and the new settlement of Cairo at the head of the Nile Delta. Elsewhere, Egypt's indigenous Coptic Christian population predominated. Over the centuries, Copts were Arabized in a cultural sense, for example taken on the Arabic language, but their adoption of the Islamic faith was more gradual. By the time of the Crusades, the ability of the Fatimid Caliphs to exercise real power over the Nile region had dwindled and for the most part, Egypt was governed by the caliph's chief administrator, his vizier. From the 1120s, this system faltered amid a cycle of political intrigue, brutality and murder. In December 1162, the governor of Upper Egypt, named Shawar, became the latest in a long line to violently seize power, killing his predecessor and entire family. But nine months later, Shawar himself was overthrown by one of his lieutenants and fled to the court of Nur al-Din. There he did his best to persuade the emir that he should intervene in Egyptian affairs, promising that in return for his help he would recognise him as lord and pay a handsome and regular tribute in future. At first, Nur al-Din refused, wary of becoming entangled in North Africa and getting distracted from his campaigns in Syria. Some months later, however, he changed his mind, when the Franks attempted an invasion of Egypt. Baldwin III had died, and the throne passed to his brother Amalric, who saw the opportunity to exploit Egyptian weakness and so alter the regional balance of power in the Crusaders' favour. The strategy in principle was sound, but its execution poor. So, in 1164, Nur al sent his long-standing Kurdish lieutenant, Shirkur to Egypt, who took the capital virtually without a fight. Shawa was made vizier once more, but soon after reneged on his promises and tried to dismiss Shirkur. When the general refused to budge, the duplicitous Shawar sent word to Amalric to come to his aid. The king of Jerusalem required little invitation and moved his forces to Cairo, forcing Shirkur to abandon the city. In response, nur ad-Din launched an attack on the north of Outremer and defeated the armies of Antioch and Tripoli. Amalric was forced to return home, leaving Shawar in charge of Cairo. The vizier had so far successfully managed to play the two sides off against each other. Four years of impasse followed, with Egypt as a nominal client state of Jerusalem. But Amalric was not content and made another attempt to conquer the Nile. At first he made good progress, capturing the town of Bilbaïs. The slaughter that followed was as cruel as it was pointless, and only served to turn the Egyptians against the Franks. As the Malaric approached Cairo, the local population revolted against Shawar. Subject to years of invasion and counter-invasion, the Egyptian people longed for stability. While the vizier was the individual with the real power in Egypt, the figurehead leader was the caliph, who at this time was a teenaged named Al-Adid. It was at this moment that Al-Adid decided it was time to move out of Shawar's shadow. He sent a frantic message to Nur al-Din, begging for his intervention. This time Nur al-Din did not hesitate, Realising that a tipping point had been reached, he sent urgent instructions to Shakur in Homs, telling him to move at once. Shakur responded at once, leading his men to Egypt. One of his companions was his nephew, Saladin, a man who would go on to have great impact on the region. The latest Frankish intervention in Egypt turned out to be a grave mistake. Realising that the people of Cairo were prepared to fight to the death, thanks in no small part to the gratuitous violence visited on Bilbaas when it fell, and now faced by the army of Shakur moving rapidly on his rear, Amalric abandoned his attack. Six days after he left, Shakur entered the city and was met as liberator by the people. This time he would not be leaving. Shawar publicly greeted Shakur with open arms, but no one was fooled by this charade. Shortly afterwards, the vizier was found stabbed to death in his tent. With Shawar out of the way, Shakur was installed as vizier, but was only able to enjoy the position for two months. Shortly after consuming a massive meal, a seizure gripped him. Hours later, he was dead the great warrior it was said died not in battle but as a result of overeating caliph al-adid appointed saladin as the new vizier apparently because he was the youngest and therefore seemed the weakest of all potential candidates during the preceding 15 years the vizierate had changed hands no fewer than 8 times Saladin came into this volatile, lethal environment as an isolated outsider, a Sunni Kurd in a Shia world, backed by limited and financial resources. Few could have expected him to prevail. Instead, Saladin ruthlessly proceeded to establish himself as the master of Egypt. He swiftly gathered around an inner core of loyal and able supporters, He crushed a revolt by the Egyptian army, and easily brushed off an attempt by Amalric to intervene. The Sunni Caliph of Baghdad and Nur al-Din both pressurised him to depose Egypt's Shia Caliph. Instead, Saladin resisted, cultivating an alliance with the young ruler. To endure as vizier, he realised he needed at first a measure of stability. This approach was in part made possible by the Caliph's failing health, who by September 1171 was on his deathbed. Then Saladin made his first guarded step towards autonomy. For centuries the name of the Shiite Caliph was recited during Friday prayer. However, Al-Adid's name was now replaced with that of the Sunni Abbasid Caliph of Baghdad. Saladin was testing the water, gauging whether rebellion would break out. But none did. The caliph died three days later, apparently unaware of the coup. Saladin made a great show of accompanying his body to its burial, and took no steps to eliminate his offspring. Despite its peaceful nature, the consequences were dramatic. The days of the Fatimids were at an end leaving Saladin to pose as champion of Sunni orthodoxy. The political astuteness as well as patient and focused diplomacy demonstrated by Saladin during these events would be employed to equally good effect later in his career. These events were also a triumph of Saladin's overlord, Nur al-Din, whose realm could now be said to stretch from Egypt to Syria and beyond. But behind the façade of Sunni unity, signs of strain between Saladin and his lord Nur al-Din were showing, as the former acted evermore as an independent ruler. Nur al-Din wanted the wealth of Egypt to help finance his own expanding military machine in Syria. Meanwhile, Saladin's priority was to build up Egyptian strength, and thus his own as another military power capable of taking over the Crusader states so he withheld the revenues that his supposed overlord was expecting, and used much of them to strengthen his own personal army. Nur al was preoccupied with disputes elsewhere in his realm, allowing Saladin to consolidate his position. Saladin sent armies westwards into North Africa with the purpose of controlling piracy and recruiting personnel for his revived Egyptian fleet. He likewise campaigned in the south, in Nubia, further up the Nile and Yemen, at the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. Both were hotbeds of pro-Fatimid support, despite the fact that the kingdoms of Nubia were still officially Christian. The subjection of Yemen brought the consideration of power over the Red Sea. With these gains, Saladin was able to protect the maritime pilgrimage route from Egypt and Sudan to the Islamic holy cities of Mecca and Medina in Arabia. Nur al din realised that he had created a dangerous opponent in Saladin, and the two rulers assembled their armies for what seemed to be an inevitable war. However, a potentially hugely damaging Sunni civil war was avoided by the sudden death through illness of Nur al-Din at the age of 60, in late spring 1174. In the Muslim world today, he remains a legendary figure of military courage and piety. His great achievements of uniting Syria and weakening the Crusader states provided the foundation for Saladin's later victories. He left behind an 11-year-old son, al-Sali, who we hoped would take up the reins of power. The lack of an adult heir opened up the possibility of Saladin taking over much of the Middle East as Nur al-Adin's inheritor, but it should be noted that there was no natural or immediate path to advancement open to Saladin in 1174. He may well have chosen to concentrate on consolidating his position in Egypt, Instead, his aim was to become the preeminent Muslim leader of the whole region. To legitimize these ambitions, Saladin emphasized his role as defender of Islam and Sunni orthodoxy, and as the supposed servant of the Abbasid Caliph of Baghdad. He also used the notion of jihad to justify the need for Islamic unity not unlike the way Pope Urban II had harnessed the fear of Muslims to unite Western Europe behind the First Crusade. Within months of Nur Adin's dins death, his realm had fractured into numerous autonomous regions. A number of Syria's regional leaders decided to back Saladin, and the self-proclaimed sultan was, at first, able to extend his authority northwards, in a series of largely bloodless campaigns, taking control of southern Syria, including the cities of Homs and Damascus. Aleppo was more difficult to take, and Saladin had to fight hard to bring northern Syria under his control. Here and in northern Iraq he faced considerable resistance, as a perceived Kurdish upstart who had turned against the family of his employer. Another important source of tension to note was that Saladin's personal army was principally Turkish, who held no automatic sense of loyalty. They stayed by his side as long as he continued to bring victories. In 1174, King Amalric of Jerusalem died of dysentery in his late thirties, depriving the Crusader states once again of a capable leader. He was succeeded by a son who became Baldwin V, a young monarch whose reign would be shadowed by tragedy and an ever-deepening crisis. When he took the throne at the age of only 13, he was already known to be suffering from some form of debilitating illness, which turned out to be leprosy. As well as having to cope with this terrible personal affliction, the young king was faced with taking control of a kingdom facing intense challenges. The main external challenge was the growing power of Saladin, but also within his realm there developed different factions competing for power just at the time when unity was most needed. The struggle for Cairo had been a decisive step in the history of the Crusader States. The internal problems of the Fatimid state presented a great opportunity for the Westerners to take over, in one form or another, the highly strategic Nile region. It would never have been an easy task. It would always have required an individual with exceptional diplomatic as well as military skills to exploit that opportunity. It just so happened that there was such an individual but unfortunately for the Christians, one who fought for the other side, Saladin. The Crusader states, though still had many strengths, and could have expected to continue to flourish. Muslim realms were repeatedly seen as very fragile, reliant on the skills of one individual, and liable to break apart if that individual passed away or lost support. Few could have foreseen the extent of the disaster around the corner. Please join me next week for the concluding part of the Battle of Hatin. Thank you for listening, and until next time, farewell. Planning for your next trip?